Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Call to Farms podcast. Today, I have a very, very special guest. This is Janine from Awfully Good Cooking. And we just met at the Wise Traditions Conference in Kansas City 2023. And I'm telling you guys, I have not met someone that I have connected more on so many levels in such a short amount of time. So we are honored to have Janine on the show. Janine, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Sophie. <laughs> Hi. Okay. So we always start off the podcast and I always ask everyone, what was it that had you answer the call to farming? There's so many pieces to this puzzle. It's hard to know exactly where to start, but truthfully, I had eaten a plant-based diet for some amount of time and was because I was really concerned about CAFO operations, confined animal feeding operations. Once I learned about this, I was like, we can't support this at all. You know, we can't eat meat. We do. So there was several years in there where I was not eating meat and my health really deteriorated to a point. I think I had such extreme vitamin A deficiency that I basically couldn't see after several years. And I, my eyes were blurry all the time. I had horrible night vision. I also had all the other telltale signs of vitamin A deficiency, the bumps on the back of my arms and like lots of skin problems and stuff like that. But my vision was so bad. And I was just finishing my thesis in grad school. And uh, the I went to the health clinic at the university at MIT and they said, you know, everything is fine. You just need to take a break from your laptop. You know, if you if you weren't typing for 12 <laughs> hours a day, then you probably wouldn't have this problem. So I just, they said, if you take a break this summer, you'll be fine. You know, if you can take a couple months off before you go back to work, but um, it was kind of wild. So I, my health was, but I had no connection to food. Uh, we, right after that, we moved, I found the omnivore's dilemma in a bookstore. I read it. I learned about polyface farm. I yeah. was like, wait, it's possible to eat meat, but only if we can do it in this particular way. Right. So I was eating some meat, but it was very hard to find high quality meat. And so I really stayed away from it. For many years and then uh, fast forward again i was introduced to nutrition and physical degeneration so a friend a mentor of mine recommended that i read it i checked it out at the library three weeks later i had to return it and i was i had this epiphany that actually it wasn't just the animals and raising them a different way it was actually about the soil health and the soil health was so important that and the way that we could support the soil health was was through these farms. So I had been introduced to this idea earlier from the omnivore's dilemma, but it didn't totally click until I read Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And after that, I was like, oh my gosh, these pieces come together. So at that point, I was like, okay, my I can't raise the family I want to have without having these foods in our diet and our lifestyle. So I have to find these farms. And so at that time, we were in Chicago and I went looking for these farms and it took a little while to piece them together, but farmers markets and friends, I, there was this one woman that I knew, uh, she kind of was like, when I woke up, she had already been there, right? She was like, I've been telling you, you know, you want to buy from these farms and these farms. And she introduced me to a lot of people and that was really helpful. That's amazing. So yeah. And I started going out and then I wanted to meet the farmers. I wanted to go to the farm. I wanted to understand. And what I learned through that time, like kind of putting all these pieces together is what I realized I'd always had kind of very environmental interests. I had been working in transportation for many years. I was concerned about all of the aspects of transportation um, with respect to emissions and um, environmental justice and social justice. And there's just so many components of that, of that puzzle that I had already been thinking about for a long time. And I thought about a lot of different environmental projects and how they could be related to things like that. But 
once I learned about this food piece and this nutrition piece, I realized that actually our farmers were the true environmentalists of our era. If there was anybody that was doing anything to rectify what I considered to be kind of a global crisis at that moment of time in my 20s, right? Like, I was like, wait, it's the farmers that are actually going to take us out of this problem because these perennial grasses in the Midwest can be 15 to 17 feet deep. And every foot of perennial grass that's going underground every year after year, these same grasses are going to come up. And every foot of that is sequestering carbon. And the way we have monocrop cultures in the Midwest, it's just uh, destroying the topsoil and the way we pour pesticides, you know, onto the ground. It's just drying everything up. It's killing all like the soil biome and everything. And these regenerative farmers, they are the exact opposite of that, right? So they are actually building topsoil, the way the animals, you know, they, this whole operation, like the CAFO operation, right? That's so upset me in the very beginning. It's like, we take this healthy thing and then we destroy everything around it. We end up with these piles of manure that become a toxin, right? The air becomes a toxin, the land becomes toxic, like everything around it. But then here, like the manure is actually just going into the ground. It's actually building topsoil. And then that's actually building all this plant, like the whole ecosystem. So one of my farmers had in that early, in those early years had recently read this book by Doug Tallamy, which is called Bringing Nature Home. And it basically talks about how all we, when we're planting in our suburban backyards, we really want to be using all native species because the combination of the native grasses and the ecosystem, like our local ecosystem can't thrive if we have foreign trees or foreign, you know, decorative like nature elements that we're planting in our yard. So we have to have like all the local things, the local grasses, the things that that ecosystem can thrive on. So these regenerative farmers are putting all these pieces together because they're effectively grass farmers, right? And mm -hmm. they are building the grasses. Those grasses are having long roots. They're the sequestering the carbon that I had been so worried about. They are uh, building the topsoil, which is like, you know, being away. By doing that, they're increasing this the water retention, right? We also have this problem of water. I'm from California. Mm -hmm. So another thing that you and I were connecting about so water has always been something that's been on my radar since I was growing up, mm -hmm. you know, in the drought, yes. like for many years in the eighties, it was like, turn the water off when you're brushing your teeth. And yes. at some point I realized like me turning the water off is nothing compared to industrial or farming applications. Right. Mm -hmm. So if yeah. we could just sequester all the water as well, that comes to us, then we could hold that in the place it belongs mm -hmm. in the ground. We would always have access to it. Anyway, all these pieces came together and I was like, we have to support these farmers. This is so important. And so I found these farmers and I was committed to supporting them at all costs. And so I was like, okay, we're just going to buy all of our meat from these people. And the meat was expensive. And mm -hmm. so we were like, okay, what can we do? Well, as it turns out, they had these cuts that nobody wanted. So that kind of leads to my story of like getting oh. into the organ meats and awful. But, you know, there was like, I really wanted the tenderloin because I really wanted to serve my family raw meats. And, and this was a new thing, right? I knew that the raw, all the traditional peoples ate some of their foods cooked and some raw. Yeah. So I definitely wanted That's to be right. serving raw meats. And we got a lot more liberal over time. I mean, now just every time I'm making hamburgers, there'll be a couple of, you know, meatballs that are just raw on a plate as appetizers that people can just eat. I don't, now it's like no big deal what kind of meat it is. But at that time I was so, it was so new to me. I was so finicky. I only wanted the tenderloin that I could slice for carpaccio or like make tartare out of it. it had to be really nice. Yeah. A really nice cut. And so that was, I mean, that meat was like, it could be like $40 a pound. I'd buy like half pound of it to make tartare, right? It was, <laughs> it was a thing. And then over here, they, they had all this other stuff. It was like, you know, $4 a pound or $2 a pound. Nobody wanted it. Right. So I, I kind of got into the organ meat realm. I know we'll touch on that. But uh, yeah, so that was really, I mean, over time, like all these pieces coming together, I was like, we have to support the farmers. Like they are the true environmentalists. They are the people doing the work that I admire the most. So I, I just love that story because it took you, it sounds like it took you 
in a short amount of time, you said you were still in your 20s when you figured all of this out and you did your research, but you were very thorough. And it seems like you dug very, very deep to understand like, oh, the answer is maybe not in technology. Maybe the answer is the small farmer who is making sure that he's building up soil health, he or she. And and in a similar vein, because we're both from California, I grew up the same way. I remember we couldn't even water our lawns yeah. <laughs> growing up without a fine. I think mm-hmm. your neighbors could rat on you and then you would get set in a fine. But especially when we started farming in California on our quarter acre, we were in, in Walnut Creek. And um, I just remember sometimes they would just I shut down. I was born in Walnut Creek. I told you, by the way. Oh my, really? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. It's just awesome. Yeah, no, we moved to Walnut Creek because of John Muir, just having access. Mm-hmm. Back then we were like, oh, John Muir is one of the best hospitals. So we'll just plant ourselves somewhere around there. Um, but really it was just around, you know, I remember they would just shut off our water mm-hmm. at random times in California. And I thought, okay, well, that's not great. <laughs> Especially when we started, we, we ended up moving, we bought six acres in Lincoln, California. So North of Sacramento, mm-hmm. and we started really farming there, bringing on ruminants and really understanding that water was critical, not just for our family, but for the animals and for our garden, mm-hmm. that that's when I started looking into permaculture well our permaculture in was we had a quarter acre in, in walnut creek and that's when we were mm-hmm. kind of looking like how what can we do to grow the most amount of food and the least amount of space and then permaculture in terms of like sequestering that water sequestering carbon yes um, because we were in california and not knowing when things could get disrupted mm-hmm. but so I, I know and i just feel like looking out in the midwest like fields and fields and fields of monocrop yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. And like this soil just looks so parched and bare. I and know. this was supposed to be like the breadbasket of America, right? It was supposed to be these rich soils and, you know, that you could grow anything. And it was such a blessing that they found this land. And then it just looked like it was like so dry and dead yeah. everywhere. But then you would find these farmers and go onto their property and you could feel the energy, you know, like yeah. Charles Massey, you know, called the reed warbler. This, like you could feel that the reed warblers were there, you yeah. know, that all the birds were coming back and the grasses yeah. and like the ecosystem, there was just like all the symbiotic relationship of all the bugs and animals. And I remember that one farmer after he'd read Doug telling me, he was like, oh, uh, you know, if we don't have insects, like it, the whole thing's a food chain, right? Yeah. I remember it was like a farm dinner and he was like trying to explain <laughs> to everybody about this food chain. It's like, if we don't have the insects, like we're not going to be here, you know, right. like we all thrive. Of course, over the next several years, I learned a lot about the biome, right? Not just the fungi, biome, yeah. But yeah, but also our human biome, yeah. like how just dependent we are on these bacteria and these yeah. small creatures that really keep us alive and help us thrive and that the soil needs that too. And just that I love this idea that like when you, you can actually see it, if you have this really rich network of, is it mycelium? Yeah. yeah mycelium. Like, the, like yeah. the sort of network underground that you know, these plants will have these really, like you could have a carrot with all these stringy things yes. coming off the end of it or a beet with all these really yes. stringy things because it's connected, but then you know that it's gotten all the nutrients and all the things it needs because it's completely connected to this network yeah. that we hardly, I mean, we think we know so much, right? We now mm-hmm. understand that it's feeding these things, but do we truly understand yeah. the level of communication and nutrients that are flowing between these things yeah. and that all that can access, but when the ground is dry and parched, you won't have any of it. But when you have this relationship between the animals that are fertilizing and changing the land patterns, especially with the rotational grazing, yep. then you can, you can really start to build this up. And that this, I mean, 
one of my lessons from my transportation career was that just that everything was local, that all politics were local and the things that we needed to try and do needed to be local. And so this also felt like a really local movement. It mm -hmm. kept the dollars in our economy by supporting my local farmers, right? It kept it in the Chicago region. Um, it supported like the local ecosystem. It gave, you know, our own family a backup to an industrial food system that wasn't necessarily reliable. There were just so many components that I was like, yes, like, let's just vote with our dollars yeah, and support these people. So, so now you, you aren't in Chicago now, and I know that you were in California. Can you tell me more about your background and what you were doing in California oh my gosh, and your so education? Many stuffs along the way. Thanks <laughs> we, for asking. My husband and I actually moved 10 times in 10 years when we were young, when we first got together. So there were a lot of stops along the way, but, um, we, my, I met my husband at Berkeley. So that was my, I grew up in the East Bay and, you know, Berkeley was right around the corner for us. Yeah. We'd gone to my husband or my father also went to Cal he was also an industrial engineer. So I went, I was in industrial engineering and operations research at Berkeley. And I met my husband there. We have the same major as well. And we, um, so I had gone to Cal football games, like every year of my whole life with his engineering awesome. friends. I wonder if your dad went to school with um, my husband's father, who also, he was born in Chicago, ironically, and went to Berkeley. Oh, small world. Yes. Well, my dad was there right after Vietnam, after he had been drafted. And he was like, he said it was a really harsh time because people would spit on him and treat him very badly. And he stayed on the north side of campus and off campus because he was a vet. And that was like during the whole yeah. Uh, that was that era in Berkeley. And so he really just, he worked a couple jobs too, to put himself through school and he was on the GI bill. Um, but he had already been, in, but he had been drafted. So he'd already been in Vietnam and then he came back and went to school there. So it was in the era just um, after that, but yeah, it was a yeah. hard time having been a vet and being on campus. Yeah. So, but at Berkeley, at Berkeley, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I followed in his footsteps. I had the same major, but then uh, so I had been in San Francisco for a couple of years working in consulting, and then I ended up going to MIT. So I moved to Boston, Cambridge, and then to Boston for a year while I was doing grad work at MIT. And I wanted to get into public transportation. Actually, I'd been working kind of on a like roadway projects and things like that. So uh, at MIT, I kind of made that transition. And then afterwards, I actually did a Fulbright. So we moved to Brazil for a year. So oh. I was in Sao Paulo. I worked for the public transit agency in Sao Paulo for a year. <laughs> you are so <laughs> incredible. <laughs> yeah. So we were down there for a year. And then uh, we came back to New York where my husband had a job. And then that changed because of the, he was in finance. And then that was in 2007, 2008. So after Lehman Brothers fell, yeah. um, the things that were happening then. And then he ended up getting another job in Chicago. So he picked up and moved to Chicago. I'd been at New York City Transit for a little while. And then I ended up working for the Chicago Transit Authority for about 15 years. So that's where I spent most of my professional career in a sense. And then we were, yeah, just, uh, we didn't have a, so I was like really, you know, like a, kind of a nutty environmentalist. Like we didn't have a car for many years. It wasn't until after I had two kids, I had two kids on public transit, like taking them to daycare and to work and all that. And then I ended up I convinced my husband to uh, get me one of those Dutch bikes at Bach Fiat. So I was like riding around Chicago on my Dutch bike. So they didn't want to drive my car. Like, beat up. And then, so then he had gotten me a Prius after we had two kids. So then I had my Dutch bike. So I just rode around. But then I realized I was like, no, the farmers are actually like, as much as I do, I mean, I can't, I don't know if it can compare to what the farmers are doing. Like they are the true environmentalists. So yeah. I really kind of had this green bent yeah. uh, coming out of California and growing up in the Bay Area. <laughs> I was going to ask you, it's so funny. You're talking about cars and transportation. I'm like, wait, you have a degree in transportation. That was your career. I'm like, so what did you, what car do you drive? What car I drive right now? Yes. Oh my gosh. I don't even know if I can say it. I drive a Toyota Tundra. You do not. I do not. 
Now we live in the mountains of Colorado. We need a full yes, drive. Yes, that's right. And we needed a car that could hold all six of us. Oh, I love it. So I mean, most love trucks, the Tundra. Yeah. Uh, don't, you know, won't, don't have that capacity. Yeah. But we actually, um, <laughs> and most of them have the middle console because it's really a work truck. So yeah. uh, we had to get one without the middle console. So it has like the, the bench seat. seat. The oh, that, so that so is my, that is much. Tim's dream truck. Since 2008, that's what he wanted. He wanted the Tundra with the bench seat. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. So when we went to four kids, we actually gave the Prius to my sister. We got a minivan and now my husband drives the minivan and I drive the truck in Colorado. Okay. So, right. awesome. changed. But I always think about the original Joel Salatin story where his dad was like riding his bike from the farm into town, like all those years ago. So he didn't, you know, he didn't want to have a car. And I have always yeah. thought like, I wonder if we'll get back to that where I just can ride my bike everywhere again. But admittedly, we're in a pretty extreme climate. We're at about, we're at almost 9,000 feet now in the Rocky Mountains in a town of 1,200 people. So, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, so yeah. We just left Chicago during COVID. So, we're up there kind of on permanent vacation. Okay. So, I don't know where we'll go from here. Yeah. But maybe we'll go back to a city and drop our cars again. <laughs> I do have like a penchant for urban places and for city planning and transportation planning. Yeah. But at the same time, Life goes on. Yeah. I have a full house now and I'm now I'm homeschooling. So oh, you I, I don't are. know okay. where we'll go. From yeah. There. Yeah. 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 But it's been an interesting well, turn of events. How exciting. So. I know that's so exciting. So are there a lot of small local farmers in your area? There are a couple. Okay. There are. So I have found it was interesting because I used all the sites that I know of to find farms when I got up there, right? Uh Western Price. I became a chapter leader because I didn't, there was nobody that had a chapter. And then uh, I used a couple of sites that I go to to find local farms or eat wild dot org, which is Joe Robinson's site. She mm-hmm. wrote Pasture Perfect. Right. So that's a great resource. And you can click on there. It's like shop for local grass-fed meats. Yeah. It's like a map and you can click on your state and then that can be a great place for resources. Another place is localharvest.org. It's more vegetable and produce stuff, but you can search for beef, chicken, and pork and far- local farms will come up there. Another one I like is regenerativefarmersofamerica.com. And that is another great resource for finding your local farms. So those are, I checked all those, but actually none of these farms, but you know, this, like the ace in the hole that like always works every time is actually just going to your farmer's market. So mm. we have a very, very small farmer's market for six weeks or something in the summer. It's very small and it's in the next, well, it's two towns away in the next big town, which is where the high school and the middle school are in Granby. So it's about 25 minutes from us. And I heard on the radio, we have a local public radio station in our town. I wouldn't even say it's public. I mean, I guess it is, but it's not like NPR. It's like right. really small potatoes. You could hear anything on that channel at any time. They do the avalanche report in the winter. And uh, <laughs> so they were saying that there was going to be a farmer's market in Granby. I heard it on the radio in the car. And so I was like, oh, I have to go to that because I haven't really found that many farmers. So I went to that and I did find one farmer there and they had grass-fed, grass-finished meats. They were familiar with Jules Latin and Weston Price and really trying to work wow. their land regeneratively. It had been in their family. They The kids had left the family Uh and moved to LA, but had come back with their own family and then started working that land and taking over the cows. So that was great. They also have pigs and chickens. They're not certified organic, but they're using mostly organic feed on most animals. So I was, I was, I was so happy to meet them. She, the farmers know each other, right? She knew the processor, the processor knows all the farmers. So I actually got in touch with many farmers. I found some lamb. I found lots of different resources in our area. It's interesting though, because the processor was just putting in a grading system so that they could really uh, market, you know, the marbling of their, that the person who owns the processor has, is doing their own farming as well. And their meats are not uh, grass-fed, grass-finished, right? So, and they're very concerned about the marbling and the grade, but they're also selling to like the ski resort, for example, is selling their meat in some of the local restaurants. 
So they wanted to say it's like this grade of meat, right? It has this, it's so interesting how um, they believe that that is the best system, yeah. right? And I, I see it a little bit differently. Yeah. That just yeah. that we have a corn surplus and they're kind of guinea pigs by being the consumers of it. But it, it but at the same time, like I think that these bigger op- retail operations that want to buy something, they want to know it's a certain standard for their customers. And then at least at the resort, we are serving these local like mm-hmm. you can get a hamburger at the resort and it is this local meat. So there, yeah. there's something to be said for that. I mean, it goes both ways. It's kind of interesting. I know that also, you know, there's talk about like local meat having kind of the resonance of the mm-hmm. climatic or other stresses that maybe in that local place and having, you know, being like nutritious for your individual context when you're in that particular geographic area. Yeah. So I think there are benefits to that, but yes, I was able to find a couple of local farmers that I was able to support. Okay. The next year I came to the conference here at Western Price. I met somebody who was from Colorado. She introduced me to some other farmers in the state of Colorado. They're not so close to me, but I've been able, I've been really impressed with some of their farming practices and have been able to support them. So have you heard of James Ranch? I think they're out in Colorado. I have not heard of that. They, particular ranch. I, I have to check to see exactly where they're at, but they're going to be carrying our cookbook. And I was looking, they're pretty big. Um, okay. at all regenerative farming, um, out there. So I know they're in Colorado. I just okay. don't know exactly where they're at, but they There's would be a, a good lot resource. of farming out on the plains, like okay. Den- that supports the Denver and Boulder area, right? Okay. Like the flat plains of yeah. the Midwest, like kind of come up into the mountains halfway up Colorado. So, and that's where the biggest market in Colorado is as well as on the front range where Boulder and Denver are. And then there seems to be a fair amount of farming and regenerative farming that is in far Western Colorado and okay. it's a really warm climate. So they can grow like produce there and yeah. like fruits, like oh, nice. produce. Okay. And they have like the peaches are from there and oh. the stone fruits and they have a lot of summer fruits. So the apples and all that, that's all coming from Western Colorado. And it, are they still at a higher elevation, like four or 5,000 feet? I think that they're like probably three, four thousand feet. Okay. Yeah. So the Colorado okay. is kind of going down, I guess, but wow. um, yeah, but we're pretty high up. So we're in a pretty cold yeah. climate and the beef that we have local to us is like the Highland, mm-hmm. you know, like the long, yes. <laughs> big corn cows. So that's really beautiful. Yeah. But, they're beautiful. But it's true too. Cause I also asked our farmer one time, somebody I, that, contacted me as a chapter leader and said, you know, do you, can you find me a good source of tallow? And I reached out to these farmers and they said, our cows have no extra fat on them. Oh, right. Because they're burning planted. through it. Yeah, all. exactly. Wow. Grass. So she was like, Incredible. we don't have any tallow to sell. Wow. Like, we hardly have enough, you know, just yeah. the ground beef is hardly good enough for most people. So wow. yeah, we, uh, we have the opposite problem where we're really? at our, our, we have a lot of tallow oh, on our cows, but the grass fed, I mean, yeah. 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 Just a different climate. Yeah. That is really fascinating to uh-huh. to hear. And the Highlands are, yeah, they're, they're beautiful. They are. And they're, Tim actually had a hide of um, Highland from our neighbors and he actually wore it on him. <laughs> like, and it just, just like, it was hilarious, but also beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the things people think we're crazy. Uh, on, <laughs> on that note, we met yesterday at the chapter leaders meeting at the Western A Prize Conference. I just felt like we were kindred spirits because <laughs> we had some conversations online prior and I just wanted to give you a great big hug. And like within minutes, we were talking about testicles. <laughs> How did that happen? And then we were in line for our buffet and I think someone came up to us and I had just like asked you like, so where are you sourcing your testicles? Cause my own, like the only pair of testicles I have are from my calves. <laughs> This, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I still have one farmer in Chicago that I'm buying from, and I guess that they will um 
you know, go through in the spring and uh, <laughs> take care of that. So they end up with a lot of them. And I have to say that when I really like when I got connected with these farmers many years ago, even 10 years back that or 12 years back now that I really wanted to support these farmers. Like I said, some cuts were very expensive. Ground beef is like fine, but they had some cuts that nobody was buying and they were so cheap. They didn't have too many of them at the market, but they soon found that they had a customer in me. So I wanted, I really wanted to support them all the way through. I said, whatever yeah. you're not selling, like I want to buy. So I think I probably started out with liver because I knew it was nutrient dense and I wanted, you know, to get uh, a relationship with that. But soon after I was happy to expand into all of the all of the meats. So I knew that my own family had a history with these. My mom had grown up nose to tail. She didn't raise us that way. I really had no exposure to organ meats before this time, but, um, but yeah, but I knew from her stories that she had eaten all those foods. So it it was, I mean, it was like weird and I thought it was going to taste horrible. And I really was like very standoffish. I just had a lot of squeamishness around meat in general, especially red meat, just Mm. because of like my years of not eating meat and growing up in the low fat eighties. I really, you know, we had a lot of chicken and fish, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily a lot of red meat. And so, yeah, even liver was like, just so like, there was just a lot of blood and stuff. It's a very wet it cut. Is. Yeah. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? But very shortly they found that they had a customer. I was like, okay, I'll try anything. Right. And I knew that the, that all the traditional peoples had eaten nose to tail. I was like, you know, it's really the engineer in me. It was like an optimization problem, right? Once yes. I realized that nutrient density was like a real world problem. It wasn't just an optimization problem because it, actually when I was in college, I had taken this linear programming class at Cal and legitimately for one of our problem sets, we had to go to the McDonald's on University Avenue and get them uh, like the nutrition data. And we had to input it into a simplex model. I mean, this is when we had a shared computer lab in the basement of Echeverry Hall. Like it's not like everybody had their own laptop back then. Right. So we're all down there. We had to enter this in and like do the kind of step-by-step algorithm for solving. We had to solve like, what was the what meal could you like, what was the lowest cost you could spend at McDonald's and still meet your RDA? So this was Mm -hmm. like a true problem set that I had in college. And at that time, actually something that I remember was that you had to get the hamburger because the red meat was the most nutrient dense thing on the menu. Mm -hmm. So the hamburger was the best thing you could get. And you had to get the orange juice because it was the only thing that had any level of vitamin C. It was the only thing on the menu that had any vitamin C. So you had to get the hamburger and the orange juice to meet your RDA. And I was so like, I was so confused by this because I was already leaning towards a plant-based diet at Berkeley in the nineties. And I, I was just like red meat. Like, how could that, I, I didn't understand how that worked actually at that time. And I always like, but like fast forward all those years later, when I learned about nutrient density and like putting all these puzzle pieces together, I was like, wait, optimization isn't something I like do in my desk at work. Like optimization is like right here in my home. Like this is my family. Like every single meal, we can optimize the nutrients that we put on our plate. So like we have to eat the working meats. Oh, Jean, I just want to give you a hug right now because I have literally, so my career, I haven't talked about it yet, but my career in the Bay Area has been in digital optimization where I literally go and I make sure what can I do for at least amount of effort for very little resource. How much and where should I be advertising? Where should I be sending our marketing efforts? And how many users can I get back for that? Right, and how right. many people can I get them to buy the most expensive product? Right. right. And I so, love like, these kinds of optimization. Yeah, exactly. And I, I live in spreadsheets all day. You're like right. hitting all my keywords. Well, this was like my and, entrance into supply. First, industrial engineering to transportation. That was all supply chain work. And then I was working on freight and then transportation. Right. Yeah. So it's like all like optimization. And then when and I you was, go home. Right. And then you go then home. I was like, Wait, this is the optimization problem. Like, <laughs> yes, this is the yes. real world optimization problem. Like, yes. now it's like I've got this plate in front of me. My kids are su- not super well. In fact, I'm not super well yes. right at that point in time wait, how can we opt? Like these people have robust health and like radiant vitality and resilience. Like, and it was just because of these food inputs. I mean, there are other elements, sunlight, things like that, but 
I was like, wait, we can do this. So I knew that my grandparents had served a nose tail diet. I was like, we have to do this. So within a short amount of time, they realized I was the only person that wanted these foods and I wanted to pay them for them. So even if it was a very low cost, I was like, no, I want to compensate you. The farmers are not, you know, they're not raking it in. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, they're doing some of the most important work. They are ever hands down and they're, and they're definitely not, uh, yeah, they're not, in fact, they're sometimes going out of business because mm-hmm. they can't make ends meet or they need some small pieces of equipment that they, you know, like an egg washer or something yeah, that they it's like, really can't afford. it's it's really wild. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was like, I'll take it all. So we, there were like years where we were just eating like so many like kidneys and like That's testicles amazing. and like those are right. That's our game. Like, how do you cook these foods? Well, testicles, like it's actually a white meat. So it's actually just like chicken, right? Like yeah. I ate a lot of white meat when I was growing up. <laughs> So whatever, it's fine. I have a pair of testicles in the freezer, and it's time to pull them out. Well, I can't tell him. I told him to eat it. He's like, I'm not eating it, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sneak it in. Either it's going to be meatballs or some sort of like fudish, yeah, (laughs) white meat, chicken breast, or something. Absolutely. You can stir fry them. You can bread them and fry them. Yeah. I'm actually going to do a uh, honey mustard. I think I was telling you this. I'm going to do honey mustard testicles uh, in the next week or so. I just love it. Probably post that. Okay. So, so now off the top of your head, do you have a list of, I think I I have a general idea, but um, from nutrient density, like what is the most optimized um, organ meat that you know, our listeners are listening and let's say they don't know yet or are not as open to eating awful or just getting started, um, or, or even traditionally like myself, where we did grow up eating all this stuff, but didn't know exactly the science behind it. We just did because economical reasons, Mm -hmm. my family was poor, we were immigrants. uh, And Mm -hmm. so we just had to eat nose to tail. Like my grandparents. Right. We we had to. (laughs) So do you know, I mean, I know I'm kind of asking you off the top of your head. No, well, ever, I mean, I think that people have heard, right. Liver is nature's multivitamin. It has the most of everything. It's really an amazing superfood and can be life-changing. I mean, I really feel like my own life was changed. I started very with a lot of trepidation with liver and I didn't know how to cook it. It was a a mess in the beginning. It was actually quite bad, but you know, if you make every mistake in the book, you kind of have a good sense right after time. So we were just having liver once a week. It's not the kind of food that you need to eat every day. So I do think that there, you know, like people think in our culture, it's like, oh, this is good. Like more must be better. But you have to have some context, right? You have a 1200 pound cow. It's got about 500 pounds of muscle meat on it. It's got one 10 to 15 pound liver on it. That's about 2% of the animal. If you talk about all the awful, like the tripe, and then, you know, you've got two kidneys that weigh a couple pounds each. You've got a three pound tongue, brains, like all this. I mean, all the awful in total is going to be 30 to 40 pounds. That's going to be about four, four and a half percent of the whole animal. Mm. If you're thinking you eat 21 meals a week, right? Three meals a day, seven days a week. That's 21 meals a week. Right. Like if you take one of those meals, one out of 21, that's going to be about 4.7%. So I think that having one meal of awful every week is in proportion to maybe how much you would have gotten in a traditional culture. Like I know that those cultures would prioritize certain people, right? If you were sick, if you were preconception, pregnancy, lactating, things like that, you would have had access to more of those, right? The community would preferentially give you more of it during that time. So it's not a hard and fast rule. And certainly in the years that I was pregnant and nursing, I ended, and also coming out of a pretty severe vitamin A deficiency and fat soluble vitamin deficiency, I consumed a lot more than what I would consider to be general guidelines. There was one study, this is a huge tangent. I, I'll come back to top organs in total, but there was one study in the 1990s, the Rothman study. And I think that you can, I don't, it's not been formally rebuked the way that like Ansel Keys, everyone kind of knows that whole cholesterol thing was a mistake. But um, I think that 
at some point we will probably point to it in a similar way. And when this article was published, there were several people that actually wrote letters of the editor to the New England Journal of Medicine saying there were a lot of questionable things about the study, but that study is actually what put the guidelines on limiting vitamin A. And again, Paracelsus, 1500s of the dose makes the poison. I'm not confused. There are some level where it can be too much, but I, uh, I think the general guidelines would say three to four ounces per week. And that's also one serving. Uh, traditional French cookbooks are going to have recipes for five to six ounces in one serving. So I think, you know, I think that there is some wiggle room there, but I, I do think that about one serving of organ meat per week is a really healthy guideline for people in general, but like which organs and, and why. So liver is super nutrient dense. It's really got all of the B vitamins. Um, it has tons of minerals. It has all the minerals and, and the, but the reason it was prized traditionally, the, the reason that the Egyptian Sudanese people believed that the liver was the held the soul, right? And the more liver you ate, the more character you had, and the more soulful you were is because of the fat soluble vitamins, right? That's the reason it was really valued by all the people around the world, right? Because Weston Price found that in traditional cultures, they had 10 times the amount of fat soluble vitamins than we had in the 1930s mm -hmm. in America. So there was that element of it. But uh, so yeah, liver is just a very powerful food. It also has extremely high levels of coenzyme Q10, which is a typically attributed to heart, but liver is also a very high source. So uh, with respect to the top organs, it's definitely going to be liver, kidney, spleen, and heart. Those four um, are definitely the most nutrient dense. They're, they're all very dark red and have like, you know, like kind of the blood flow organs are going to have all the nutrients of the blood and um, are going to be very nourishing and filling for us with respect to nutrients. Uh, liver is prized. Of course, it has the most fat soluble vitamins. Kidney also has some vitamin A, but not quite as much as liver. And then, um, spleen and heart are kind of getting into different types of muscles, but, but also very high. It's interesting frontiers in nutrition in 2022 published a study with a nutrient density of like many foods, like probably 50 or 100 and 18 of the top 20 foods were animal foods and four of the top eight were these organs. Wow. So yeah, that's incredible. Uh, and they were particular, they were looking at particular micronutrients that people might be deficient in. Mm -hmm. So they looked at iron, vitamin A, calcium, things like that. Um, but yeah, so those four are the top ones, but it's interesting because I've actually done a chart where I look at, uh, many foods, like from what we consider our superfood plant foods, like leafy greens and blueberries mm -hmm. and Fail. yeah, things like that. And then the dairy foods and muscle meats and then yeah. the organ meats. And it's, I kind of just did like, a you know, shading across it to not with the actual values of how much nutrients it has, but just to like see the, the gradient. And you can see that the plant foods are over here. They're pretty light. And then in the middle, you have the muscle meats right. and the seafood and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then over here, you have the organ meats. And of course, liver is very dark. These other yeah. uh, organs that I'm talking about are very dark. But what's interesting is things like brains and sweetbreads, which are not considered to be like super powerhouse foods by any stretch. I mean, actually, traditional people did revere brains as one of the four fatty organs, huh. yeah. tongue, brains, marrow, and liver as yeah. the four prized fatty organs. Um, but they actually are equivalent to muscle meat and to seafood. With respect to um with respect to minerals and the b vitamins things like that did you put this together somewhere online? i do have it yeah i okay. have like a food as medicine nutrient guide okay so, great and that's on your website um it's it's not but it's a free gift if you come to my um i have like a free webinar online like how to cook organ okay. meat so it's liverloverchallenge.com okay and then you can sign up for my webinar and if you watch it then you can get access to my food as medicine nutrient guide and i have like a bunch of nutrient data about liver and then like across all those organ meats and also like raw versus cooked and just a bunch of things that I kind of put together in that little booklet. Amazing. So, okay. yeah. So I, I mean, I'm really, I feel like this is food is medicine and these yep. things are very powerful and it's almost like, okay, so I'm telling you all these nutrient things, but what does that translate to? I mean, that translates into at, like 
it definitely translates into more energy, right? Like liver is such an energy food. People always say, I'm so surprised at how much better I feel. I've got these chronic illnesses. I usually can't get out of bed in the morning or, you know, like people just have so much more energy. If you go on any of the supplement manufacturers and you look at the testimonials, people are like, I feel amazing. I mean, all the B vitamins, the B vitamins are actually responsible for metabolizing food. So like one of the B vitamins is for metabolizing carbohydrate and extracting energy. One of them for extracting energy from fats, one of them from extracting energy from proteins, one of them for cell repair, right? Using all these different pieces to repair ourselves, neurotransmitter synthesis. This is what the B vitamins are doing for us. So when I say it has B vitamins, you have to imagine this is energy extraction from the food that we Mm -hmm. eat, cell repair and neurotransmitter synthesis, right? Like this is what we're talking about. We're talking about also liver is very high in copper combined with the vitamin A. Uh, you know, we now have a strong sense that I know we've all been told that we need iron for anemia and things like that, but it's actually the copper that's regulating the iron, right? So the iron is like the foot soldier and the copper is the general and the copper is telling the iron where to go. So it might not be that you're low iron. It might be that the, all the iron is locked up in your tissues and you don't have access to it and you really want to have access to it. And the copper will tell the iron where to go. Similar to the way the fat soluble vitamins are kind of conducting a symphony in our body and our cells and directing other nutrients around. So the copper can, you know, completes enzymes that give our mitochondria, like just the insides of our cell, like energy at its core. Um, and then, you know, the coenzyme Q10 is reducing mm-hmm. inflammation and providing energy in that way. So there's yeah. so many components of that. I mean, the, also the later B vitamins, like B6, B9, B12, these are all associated with uh, mental health, mm-hmm. right? So right. all the mental health benefits of just like having clarity of mind, concentration, focus, better memory, I mean, who doesn't want, I like, when I learned about these things, I was like, why doesn't everyone eat these foods? And then when I found out that my farmers were like both going broke and not able to sell half their cuts, right. Or not half their cuts, but a fraction of their cuts that nobody wants. Sometimes they don't even take them back from the processor because they don't have enough storage space, Mm -hmm. right. It just stack up over time. It's wild, especially from these regenerative farmers that have such high quality needs. It's fun. I mean, I think it's worth eating conventional liver. If you eat conventional meats, I still think it's worth eating conventional liver Absolutely. because I do think that I agree. Uh, it's just a more nutrient dense version of the same meat. Like, why wouldn't you just get more nutrients for the same fill? Right. Like, exactly. I, it's like so baffling me. But then like these regenerative farmers that are producing these really beautiful animals. I mean, this is like really just a real gem to have in your hands. And then to say that they, they can't sell the testicles to anybody. Yeah. Uh, it's wild. So like we were just, we would eat them all the time and like, I would, I would well, so it's funny because I actually just like it's lamb fries or you know oysters right like yeah. beef can be oysters and so I like people my kids would be like what is it? I'd be like oh we're having lamb fries like I don't even know that they like I mean now they <laughs> obviously know that they're testicles but it's funny because for years they just knew them as lamb fries and they didn't really know what they were and they were just like oh we're having lamb fries like it's just a, a meal in our house that's what we eat <laughs> so so is there a difference then do you find between I know we're talking a lot about beef, but what about lamb, other ruminants, goat, yeah, liver, so, goat, heart? You gosh, know, like, like there's so many components, right? I mean, Fred Provenza has shown us a nourishment that different, like what they're foraging on, like what grasses and shrubs and different things, like there can be different um, kind of phytochemical, bioflavonoid, polyphenol compounds that are mm. like, these are all little antioxidants, right? That yeah. are in the meat. So those will show up, right? The same way that if I'm eating garlic and I'm breastfeeding, right? My milk yeah. is going to have, so that can, if that is happening in the last several weeks of the animal's life that they're having access to that kind of pasture or forage or whatever, then it will affect like how their meat tastes and what nutrients it can have. I'm talking about beef as a general benchmark, but actually beef from different farms can probably vary 
maybe not so significantly in nutrient values. In fact, I think that's what Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf found in Sacred Cow was that the nutrient mm -hmm. values overall, they yeah. didn't have like significant data to say that it was that it was very different even between grass-fed and conventional. But I think that there's a lot that we don't understand based on Fred Provenza's work and also the work of Western Price and things like that, just that there could be more to there could be nutrients that we don't even understand, right? Mm -hmm. Like at another level, right? Right. That's like bioflavonoid and like polyphenol, like the, that level. Like we don't even know how to measure things like that. We don't yeah. even have names for those things. The way that Western Price didn't, he called vitamin K2 activator X because it didn't have a name at that moment in time. So yeah. right now we say, okay, we look at this meat across these different sources and it's relatively similar. And it's true at McDonald's, the most nutrient dense thing you can get is the red meat. So, I mean, there is an element of that that is absolutely true, but I think there are components that we that we can go deeper on that we don't totally understand yet. But across the animals, um, lamb is actually very high in minerals and actually is higher in some cases than beef. Mm -hmm. And then poultry is a little bit lower. Yeah. So yeah. So that's what I have found with the data that I looked at. And that's just standard USDA nutrition database data. <laughs> so that's not anything so, special. Yeah, just what right. I can get off the USDA website. <laughs> But okay. Yeah, then. And what are your thoughts on like biodiversity and, and not just like thinking about optimization for let's say beef, for example, but mm -hmm. introducing things like, you know, turkey, turkey liver or, mm -hmm. um, chicken gizzards, you know, yeah, like so adding different types of things just to diversify. We talk about like our gut health and things mm -hmm. like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I actually think that I I'm so appreciative that you just mentioned that because I, I do believe that the foundation of any stable, stable ecosystem is diversity and our body is a sort of ecosystem. And so we actually want diversity as much diversity as we can. And the funny thing is that people might just think that's different foods. And it's funny because we're so confused about that. We can go to the grocery store and Michael Pollan says that there's 17,000 new food items introduced each year, but they only have the same three ingredients, right? Like wheat, corn, and soy. It's like nothing new, but even in terms of like what we can get at the grocery store, I'm not even talking, there's, in my mind, there's two food groups. There's like, we have three macronutrients, but carbohydrates and fats are both energy macronutrients. And then the protein is the building macronutrients. So, you know, if you look, think about diversifying across your energy macronutrients, it might be diversifying across colorful vegetables, but it could also just be diversifying across the different animal fats that you can consume, right? Like duck, chicken, beef, lamb, all the seafood, yep. like all these different fats. And then in terms of meat, we can diversify across all these different animals. And then we can also diversify across all the different cuts Yeah, because they're going to have nutrient profiles. So I do think that diversity is so important because yeah. Yeah. And also it's like wild that that the farmers are, you know, I, the, where I am now, I have a farmer who will process all the chickens. They really are short of hand. They like don't have time and they also don't have customers. They, they throw out all the gizzards. So now that they know me, they just store them all in a bin and then I come pick them up and I will, you know, I'll process them myself, like cut them, take out the little yeah. sack. It's a little bit art and science. You're know, like cutting a hundred gizzards and you get a really fine touch of like, yes. not to break that sack yes. inside. Oh my goodness. Like we should just people, hang right? out together. <laughs> I literally do that. I teach that in our chicken processing course. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and I literally show people how you can process your gizzard you where you don't throw it out. It's no, food. it's, and you just, I cut it finely. And I love the challenge. Yes. It used to be pre-med. So I think that's why I love it. <laughs> like, it's always like, how do I finally cut it? And then just break it open so that we just have the sack and I throw right. the whole sack away. Nothing exactly. gets like, exactly. not, a, not a mess at all. Right. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love it. So 
uh, yeah, so using all the cuts. So that's kind of like where I got into all the organ meats and just exploring with them. And then yeah. because I really wanted to support the farmers, like at all costs, like nose to tail, every cut, I wanted to purchase all these. And then whenever they had stuff, they would just give it to me because I knew I would take it. Nobody wants to throw it out. The farmer doesn't yeah, want to throw it out either. To. So no. when they know that there's a customer and then I could educate them, I'd say, oh, I got this. New, I made this new recipe. It's so good. You're going to love it. Like you got it, you know, I'll be telling the farmer how to cook these meats. Then they can sell them, right? Because if they haven't prepared them, they don't know how to make them themselves. They haven't found it to be good yet. It's really hard for them to sell to somebody, right? Then somebody says, like, what would I do with that? Yeah. And then the person standing next to us at the farmer's market be like, oh, that sounds good. Like, I will take one of those, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, here at the conference, it's been fun because people know me. They've been coming up to me, asking me questions. Somebody was, two people told me yesterday that they're giving hearts to their pets. Like somebody said chicken hearts and then somebody else said beef hearts. Like in one, like two different people in the course of 15 minutes. So <laughs> first I was telling the women with the chicken hearts, she's like, I cooked them and they turned out horrible. And I was like, tell me what happened. Cause chicken hearts is like really, really like delicious. the best yeah. food ever. And it's actually one of the organs that I ever ate before my awful days, because when we lived in Brazil, when they have yes, the, the Costco and yeah, they have skewers, the, the skewers of, yeah. of chicken hearts and everybody loves them and they eat them like candy. And so that was like, I kind of didn't even consider it to be awful organ meat, like yeah. kind of food because right, right. like I had this different cultural context where everyone was eating it and everyone loved it. So I just thought it was like a meat that I should be eating and yeah. like, we loved it. So <laughs> I, I've actually like never, I've always like held chicken hearts in this special category. So as it turns out, the chicken heart comes inside this membrane. It's like a little sack, right? Like the many pericard organs the, do. The pericardium. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically this woman didn't realize that had to be removed. So she had been cooking it with that. And then of course that part becomes very tough and it was yeah. like all, and then it was kind of gross and then she didn't really understand. So I was explaining to her how you really want to like make a, you know, kind of a cut in that again, you want to cut it, but not pierce the heart and then pull it inside out. It kind of pulls up and then you can clip that whole thing off. I always try to reserve the fat at the top of the chicken mm -hmm. heart, but then you can just snip that off the top and any kind of tubules that are sticking out will go with the rest of that membrane, right? You can right. discard that and then you can, and there's a 10,000 ways to cook the chicken hearts. Yeah. So she was like, okay, I'll try. I won't feed it to my pets. And then the next woman was telling me the beef heart, she's feeding it. And then she was just like, oh, I just don't know if I like have any reason to eat it. And I was like, but heart is the highest source of coenzyme Q10, yeah. which is like the most powerful antioxidant in our body. And it's a fat soluble nutrient. It's, it's like, we don't even, again, we don't even understand the benefits of these things yet, mm -hmm. truly. And, um, and so I was talking to her about, you know, energy and inflammation and all these things. She's like, oh my gosh, I do need this. So what, what, but she's like, but well, what do I do? I live alone. Like the heart does like, you know, it could be like three pounds. It's like this huge cut. It, it is really, it is really big one, right? Yeah. But the thing is, is that you can make three different dishes out of one heart. Yeah. So you can just take it. I told her, just take half of it right away and, um, you know, open it up, trim out the inside and just cut it, cut the whole thing into big chunks right? And take half those big chunks and put them in the blender, pulse them, and you'll have some ground meat. Put it in a Tupperware. You can have that in a couple of days. Like it's just ground meat. It's, yeah. It doesn't right. have any off flavor, you know, no, no. organ flavor. Yep, yep. So that's perfect. And then, you know, for the other pieces you've got the, I like to, when I grill a heart, I've done everything wrong. So like I've grew, I've tried to slice it and grill it and all that. And it just becomes really tough and rubbery. Yeah. You don't want to do it. But if you have these big cubes, mm -hmm. when I was growing up, I would go to these Portuguese fascists in the Valley, like all summer long, like every, every, like, you know, Modesto and yeah. uh, Visalia. And I don't know, like all these like weird towns all over the Central Valley. We would go and they would have all, where all the Portuguese people come together and they would like have a community meal and a little parade. And uh, it's a thing I grew up with. So in, in California, growing up Portuguese and so my, um, but one of the, one of the ways they always do, like, they often do stew meats, but yeah. some of the fascias, depending on where they're from in Portugal, they'll do like where they have like these long skewers and they have these big pieces of meat and they'll just put rock salt all over them and bay leaves in between. And then they grill them over a fire. Hmm. 
and they're so good and they're really juicy and they kind of make these sandwiches out of them. And my mom loves it. I love it. Some every blue moon, my uncle will do it for us. I don't know. Maybe it's an Azorian thing because my uncle's from the Azores and he huh. will sometimes um, do that kind of meat on the spit like that for us. Huh. But um, a really delicious preparation. So I always try to do that with the heart where I have like these really big chunks. I just cover it in salt. I don't necessarily do the bay. I don't have fresh bay leaves. And I didn't in Chicago. That's something very California thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Backyard, grass and bay leaves. <laughs> but um, so I don't have that anymore. But but if you do that and you grill them like that, and I leave all the fat caps on. So that fat is kind of dripping all over the meat while it's cooking and marinating it and basting it. And it's really awesome. But if you take them off, then the because they're such big cubes that I like to yeah. do, they'll really be rare in the center and they'll be really tender and juicy yeah. because they're still rare. And so then you can just take those big cubes and quarter them. And then you have these smaller pieces that you can put over a salad or just eat. And then because they're so well salt, again, I I'm really big on salt and I really, I'm afraid that most people think meat in general is bad and especially organ meats because they're just not salty well enough. Yeah. Salt is just so essential to our protein digestion. Um, we, you know, salt is NaCl and sodium chloride and our stomach acid is HCl, um, hydrochloric acid. And so we, that chloride from the salt is needed right at the moment of eating that meat to our stomach is what's responsible for the breakdown of proteins, right? Yeah. Whereas our small intestine will do fats and carbohydrates, but so we like need that in our stomach. So to salt the meat is actually to break down the meat mm-hmm. well in your stomach. It's to give you the nutrients you need right at the moment you need it to break that down it's well. Perfect. Yeah, it's like perfect. It's so you perfect. have to salt the meat so well. Yeah. So when you yeah. salt it so well, it's like delicious. It is. And it helps you digest it. It's like, it's just such a beautiful match. So it is. Anyway, so yeah, we were just yesterday, this one was asking about the heart and like both of them were like, okay, I'm going to try. I'm not going to give the next one to my dog, right? So good. So, the like, conversations like- are changing because now that I've been posting up on social media about offals, just even, you know, after we butcher our chickens or after right. we butcher our animals and I'll be like, Hey, this is our lamb heart. This is what we're going to do. Right. People are starting to reach out to me and saying, okay, I'm about to butcher all my chickens. What, which organs should I save? save. That's right. Which is so amazing. This is a different paradigm. It is shifting. It is shifting. And I love that. Yes. I love that. So, okay. Did your kids grow up eating? So they did. They did. So when I started the whole Weston price gig, um, my son was about two and my daughter was only three or four months old. So he was still on early foods and my husband, bless his heart, has always eaten everything I've served. Yeah. So he didn't really know any different. Um, I don't know if he like my two-year-old was just kind of like, this is what we, he's always been kind of very, so he's a Weston a price baby. Did he start um, off with raw liver? No, no, no. So he was about two. Two. Yeah, okay. my third and fourth are definitely Western Price Baby. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but those two, um, not so much. No. So that was another thing is that my son, by the time he was two, you know, he was in speech therapy, behavior therapy, occupational therapy, like all these therapy. And I was so confused because my grandmother, who's from the old country, who was one of 14, was always like, healthy kids don't get sick. Yeah. So I always right. had this sense, like something was wrong. Like what was wrong with my kids? Because I was so healthy. I was doing everything right. I was, I was cooking huh. his baby foods from scratch. I was pureeing yeah, yeah, yeah. and beets yes. and like all the, exactly. yeah. it's like all the things. That's and how I, I got started. Sending his little purees <laughs> to his daycare and stuff. And so I was like, I'm making all of his food from scratch. He's so no cream, no butter, no salt, you know, like what was I doing? But I was totally following the guidelines. I right. thought I was doing so good because I wasn't giving him packaged food. Yeah. And yeah. then he had, and then all these things were like, Wrong, wrong with him, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, this is his perfect development as his own spiritual being. But like, yeah. But I was, I was always like, something isn't right. Like, yeah. it just doesn't make sense. Like, how is it that he's having all these problems? Okay, that yeah, yeah. And then once we switched our, and he was also just so, um, transitions were so hard, and he could be so anxious about things. But once we introduced like all the fats and the fat soluble vitamins, I mean, in my own life, right? I was so overwhelmed. I was anxious about things. I was so quick to tears, pre Western price, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like the, gosh, the benefits of the liver and the organ meats and all the animal fats 
on mental health and acuity and just thinking it's wild. It's right? wild. I it's wonder, really wild. I, I wonder back on that old, so my, sometimes my husband's just like, remember when he used to be like, you know, like, yeah, something will come up and it's like, yeah, I can't believe it. And I wonder if it's just taken what one to two generations to not mm-hmm. learn about this Yeah, for us to have such an effect on our mental health as well. Cause we're, we're, we're tossing this away if, right. if even, and then we're, we're, we're giving them to our animals, which is great that they're benefiting from it, but mm-hmm. we should oh, be conceding it. I just, I'm always like, if people understood it, though, if they, people saw it the way I saw it, if they understood what this meant to them, like how different they would feel. I mean, they would never, of course they would eat this stuff, but people are yeah. so, and like you said, there is a paradigm shifting. People are changing. People yeah. are warming up to this, but it's, it's definitely been interesting. I mean, yeah. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show because it's so awfuls are so important to me. It's one of the reasons why I really fought our publisher to make sure we kept it separate. Mm-hmm. I have a whole Chapter, chapter at the end of the book dedicated to offals because I wanted it that way. And they were saying, well, why don't you just put the beef tongue and the beef letter under the, under the beef section? Cause I have all of my chapters divided into proteins. proteins Cause that's mm-hmm. just how we cook at home. Like right. whatever's thawing in the, right. <laughs> in the refrigerator right now. Well, I, I just feel like it's the Western price way to think about your meals and your day, right? Like, and I feel like in our family, my kids, we have a Western price home so they can eat anything. You know, we do make sourdough bread, things yeah. like that, but they need to eat the protein first, right? Yeah. Like the animal fats and the animal foods are the most important part right. of our diet. So we do that first. And that's kind of the way we think that's, about it, yeah, right? Like what is the protein? Exactly. And then it just stems out from there, <laughs> yep. right? Then we can build our meal out from there. Exactly. Like you're going to, you can hear you've been served a, a meal. You don't have to eat it, but if you do, but if you want seconds, you have to eat your protein, Yeah, right? Like you don't exactly. have to eat the other stuff on the plate, exactly. you have to eat the protein. That's exactly what I said. And if you're yeah. not, if you're full, that's fine. But if you're hungry, then right. Right, you need to finish the, yeah. the animal portion first. Cause that's where you're nutrients are coming from. Yeah. All that other stuff is gravy. (laughs) So what is, um, what are your recommendations for families Mm -hmm. that, um, have not been eating offals and specifically what are some advice that you'd give to parents who are wanting to get their children started up on it and they, you know, have an aversion to it. Um, I, yeah, I say that my aversion was the worst of everyone in our family. Like I said, my husband, bless his heart. He just ate the food. And my oldest son is like that. Like he'll just kind of eat anything. And my daughter was too young to know. And then the other kids have been raised with it. So there's been some sense of it coming up. Like they've had it all the time, but I think this is a real thing. And I think that there's a couple things. I think that, um, I think that, you know, organ meat blends are a great place to start. They're just so easy. And you can even buy package one now. My yeah. force of nature force has of them nature is and incredible. there's other ones and the local processors will, even if you're buying a half animal or something, you can probably ask your farmer if the processor can mix it in for you. So sometimes they will do that. Um, anyway, so that, I think that's a great place to yeah. start. I also think it's totally okay to say like, I'm, I think like, I really want to do this and I really want to experiment with it. And I don't really know how to cook this food because these proteins can be a little bit different. They're not muscle meat. So sometimes they'll have different textures and things like that. I kind of have a whole framework about around connective tissue and we could go into that if, if we have time. But, um, but again, if you come, if you go to liverloverchallenge.com and you sign up for my free masterclass, then I'll go through this paradigm of like how to cook any organ meat, like okay. by having this framework of knowing how much connective tissue each cut has, it gives you a good sense of knowing how you can cook it. Once you know how you can cook it, you can use any preparation that your family already loves, right? Like use the flavors and the spices and the things that you already like that you have yes. some familiarity and comfort around because that's what your family already knows and loves. So just make dishes that you know they would like, right? But you have to kind of know how to cook the different proteins right. in some sense. Yeah, I would say organ meat blend. And then I would say, uh, you can, so as I say, you can even tell your family, like, I, I'm not like, I'm experimenting with this. This is an experiment. I don't know how it's going to go, but I want to try it out. And I think that you get a little bit more leeway there instead of putting serving, building, like 
if you have an attitude of experimentation, everything is lighter versus I cook this. It's really important. You have you to eat, eat it. it. It's good for you. It's good for you. Like that's kind of intense. It's a little bit heavy, you know? And also like, especially when you're not even sure yourself, that it's going to go very well. So I think that that kind of attitude helps a lot. And then uh, the other thing I think I was, I think is important is that even though this is not what I did, I was very much like, this is a value system in our home and this is important to me. And we are going to find a way to prepare these yeah. meals in a way that's edible. And we are going to commit to eating them every Monday night. So I prepared liver every Monday night and I still do. That was 12 years ago, Wow! but I started making it once a week on Monday nights. I did not know how to cook it, but I cooked the same meal for several months in a row. Like the same, like I found this one recipe in this one old Italian cookbook for a liver uh, that it was prepared a certain way with uh, just like lemon and parsley is very simple. Okay. And I prepared that every week until I kind of got it down and could stomach it myself. But and you so, I mean, fry was, that you just fry that on a skillet. Yeah. I just pan fried it. And then and, is it still a little bit raw in the, um, yeah. So that's like, I used to always say also don't overcook liver, but now I really have found that it's a preference between texture and intensity of flavor. Yeah. So a liver that's not as well cooked is not going to have such intensity of flavor. Like if you eat raw liver, if you slice it off and eat like carpaccio yeah. or something, it's just not quite as intense. If you cook it for a long time, it will have a very intense flavor. And it can also, if you cook it really long, it will become dry and yeah. grainy and crumbly yeah, and then no it's good. like dirt. It's yeah. like really no good. But um, I think that happens too, because people are nervous. They leave it in the pan a little longer, you know, than they yeah. otherwise would, but that's no good. Um, yeah. So this is actually not what I did, but I was going to say, you know, you don't have to make the liver be the main dish that you could have a whole dinner and you could do one piece of liver for your whole family and you could all split it and share it. Yeah. Right. Like it doesn't have to be that big of a deal to start. So that would be one way to start with like teens or older kids that would be a little bit, they could be a little bit more amenable to that. And there's a, there's a debate out there. Do you soak or do you recommend soaking your liver in milk before? Yeah. So I did that for years and it was, again, I think it was like both a procrastination technique and a way to become friends with the meat because I, it was like, I just needed more of a relationship with it to, <laughs> I just needed to get to know it a little bit better. It, it was like a process to kind of overcome like all my own cultural baggage around like my mom just saying how horrible these meats were <laughs> and how she hated eating them growing up and stuff like that. So, um, but I, I don't think that I have not noticed like an appreciable difference in flavor. And yeah. so I don't actually soak them anymore. And one of the things that I love about liver is it is so quick and easy. I mean, you can have a liver dinner on the table in under five minutes. Yeah. You it can is. dry it off yeah. and like sear it. And it, and it, you know, that's usually in thin slices. I think that, I think that an eighth of an inch slice is like heaven, but most of the time you're going to find quarter inch. But even if you decide to go with a half inch cut, you can get some rare in the middle. So this is the trade-off with rares. The texture can be a little, it can be a little bit more gooey, and yeah, goopy, right, right, but right. then it has less intensity of flavor. I have children that prefer a rare liver and want it to be like kind of gooey Just, like that, that's gonna or break. even eat it rare. And I have another child who really wants his liver overcooked. Like he does not mind intensity of flavor. This kid will eat anchovies, capers, like really strong foods, oh, like okay. out of the jar, but he would rather have liver that's completely cooked through. He doesn't want to see anything any inside. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. want any blood. Yeah. That's and my so, interest. yeah. So, I mean, I have both. So I used to always say like, oh, you know, you always don't want to overcook your liver, but I, I actually think that people have different preferences. So it's either a texture or a flavor, a intensity of flavor. Ooh, I, like I think that. it's a trade-off between texture and intensity of flavor. I like that. that I like can, that. Um, you know, depend, you, know like you just have to experiment. So yeah. If you make it a few times, you'll know. And it's a matter of minutes, really. It's just a right. minute. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. an eighth of an inch is less than a minute. I think quarter inch is standard, and that's really not more than 90 seconds on okay. each side. And what if you have a kid who says, uh, I get it, mom, but I, I don't care about nutrient density. I just, yeah. if you're going to make me eat offals for now, then what do you recommend has the least amount of flavor? 
and that yeah, could be good. Well, for kids. I was going to say, well, I think in that case, it's going to be pate. And so you can cook liver the same way that you would normally cook it. And you can just throw it in the blender with things that you love. And if even pate has too much intensity flavor, because the other problem with pate is that you really want to cook it a little more rare than you usually would. Yep. It's going to keep cooking in the blender jar, yep. right? So yep. sometimes you make one that like, seems like it's going to be perfect. Like you nibble in the liver, it's really good. But then it, when you cook it, it's like, oh, that's got really strong all of a sudden. Yeah. It's because the blender cooked it a little bit more, but I would even say that um, if, if your kid was still adverse, then I would put jam on it. Yeah. I would put a jam over it and then lessen that over time. Over, so, over pate or yeah, over the liver? Jam. Like, yeah, I would just do it like on, if you were doing on sourdough bread, or even if you were doing it on something like a Parmesan, you know, just Parmesan cheese, that's like baked to a crisp, if you're not doing crackers or something, then you could even put a little bit of jam on it and then put the pate on it. So it has like that sweetness because yeah. that kind of, and then over time you can reduce, you can lessen that. So we don't, yeah. I have never had jam or jelly in my house, but okay. for people that, you know, who know that their kids already have a sweeter tooth and they're not going to eat the pate, but in our house, what we'll do is just serve it with like grapes or apple slices or something sweet. Mm. If I, if they're like, kind of like, don't necessarily want it. Um, but we do a lot of just like sliced bell peppers, carrots, cucumbers, stuff like that. We yeah. do a lot of just dipping into pate. Yeah. We don't do a ton of, I mean, we have like had phases like making more sourdough bread or not, but we don't always have it in our house. Yeah. We do the same. We do the sourdough bread. We do the pate. We do the raw butter. Mm-hmm. We haven't done the jam with it, but I do always yeah, have I some sort of pickled, like need it, but... some sort of like fermented mm-hmm. radish. The kids will love that. They love fermented oh, yeah. foods with because the pate. like the brightness. Yeah. So something, I do think that liver like really requires an acid. So like a tomato based or a citrus based lemon, lime, orange, and kind of citrus, a vinegar, like balsamic vinegar or another kind of vinegar that you like, like all those things really brighten it a lot. That brightness, like just really matches the intensity of flavor. And those two make it it almost. Yeah, 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 it does. I think it's like really powerful. I think that making it delicious and beautiful. I think that matters, you know, like exactly. digestion it starts with the eye and like when it's beautiful, you're just like, oh, maybe I will try it. When it's like this bland, mm-hmm. like gray, brown, dark meat, <laughs> it's like, why would I eat that? I don't know. Yep. I don't know if I have that in me, but when it's really bright and beautiful, I think that they're at least be willing to experiment with it. And I also think that most moms quit too soon, you know, just yeah. that it's psychology today tells us we need 15 to 20 exposures to a food to overcome a new flavor. Like if you were just introduced to kimchi or something. So I think that if you would do it two or three times and your kids don't take it or don't like it, I mean, I don't know that that's the reason to stop. Yeah, I agree. I just think that we should keep going and yeah, we don't have to do it every week, but I do think that having a habit a habit life and a schedule. The things that are important to us, we do schedule in our life, right? We put them on the calendar and we show up for them. I think that's actually important to us. So that's why we had liver on Monday nights. It was, I knew it was the most important meal of the week. I knew I wanted to start our week that way. I feel like it gave me a lot of grace in the rest of the week. Yeah. If there was an event or a party or it's grandparents yeah. show up, you know, like eating habits change. But if I knew we had gotten that Monday night in, mm. we're usually home on Mondays, just felt like we could start our week right. And it was important. So we scheduled okay. it. Okay. That's I think that's did. something we're going to have to implement in our family. <laughs> yeah. I would also say too, though, that like along the lines that I was saying earlier with like vitamin A toxicity and things like that, I do think that liver is like salt. It's a really essential nutrient, all of the things inside of it. And, you know, sometimes you just crave salt so much and, uh, and if you are eating it, if you're eating something with a lot of salt, and then at some point you just can't have another bite, you're yeah, done, right? right? Yeah. It's like you're filled up right. on it. It gets exactly. such a powerful food. And I think that liver is the same way. And I've experienced this and I've seen all my kids do it where at some point in a meal, they just push it away. And if you're not used to eating liver and you don't like it, I think there's a fine line between like, you know, eating something that overcoming a 
a flavor that you don't like, or you're not familiar with. Yeah. But if it's a food that normally is satiating and satisfying to you, and at some point you feel like you don't want another bite. Yeah. Like it, so I definitely don't force my kids to like finish a pate or something like that. Okay. Um, I also feel like kids are so in tune. Yeah. Know? Like they'll, people will crave it and then it's like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're done. Yeah. That's I know. Fine. It, it's like a really intense, it's, a, it's such a nutrient dense food. It is. And this is the whole thing is like, we have to honor our flavor and like feedback mechanisms. Yeah, we do. And this is kind of why I steer clear of supplements as much as I can, because I just feel like you're skipping that. And I do think that people can get into trouble that way mm-hmm. because there are so many nutrients. So yeah. it can serve people. It can help you get back on your feet. But I think that if, if you needed that to get on your feet, that's great. But like maybe try incorporating actual food into your diet because mm-hmm. liver, first of all, we have these farmers that are it might be that you live in an urban area and the liver is very expensive, but the funny thing is you don't have to go too far out of town to find farmers that don't have customers mm-hmm. for beautiful grass-fed, grass-finished meats yeah. and regeneratively, you know, regenerative right. lands. Right. Yeah. So I do think that a little bit of work okay. can uh, rectify that situation. And then to have the flavor and feedback mechanism is very powerful for just knowing how much to eat and when to stop. So Great. I think that's very valuable. Janine, thank you so much for your time. Where can our listeners learn more about what you have? Oh, thanks for asking. Well, my handle is awfully good cooking, two F's, two L's. So (laughs) awful, um, O-F-F-A-L-L-Y, awfully good cooking on Instagram and on uh, YouTube and on Facebook. Yeah. And also on, that's actually my website as well, awfullygoodcooking.com. And I've got about a hundred recipes up there right now, like all different kinds of organ meat recipes. So I have sections like kidney, liver, tongue, things like that. But if it's a, something that you don't see like gizzards, just type it in. Cause I've got a half dozen of those too. There's just a bunch of stuff back there. So hiding yeah. on that blog site. So if you're looking for some great recipes, find something that looks beautiful to you, something that looks like flavors your family already loves. I think that starting with things that are like accessible and familiar is a great way to just kind of get your toes wet and try and again make it as an make a meal and then use it as an appetizer you know you don't have to if it goes really well then you'll have leftovers of your other meal and you can finish it and if not then you'll just have a little bit to you know just to start exposing your case buds to new flavors more diversity mm-hmm. of cuts all those but well, i really appreciate our conversation and all of the thoughts and research that you've put into years and years of research and experimenting So thank you again so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. I love the call to farms. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. And to everyone out there, stay healthy. Till next time.